Hello and welcome to Tomorrow Will Be Great. I am Elise. And I'm Julia. And today we have a very exciting guest, Marissa from Ana. Hello. Hi everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. So Marissa is a designer here in Philadelphia. She has been running her own company of beautiful women's clothing for how many years now? Uh, About five. Five five in August. I actually first met Marissa a long time ago. She's one of the first designers we ever started carrying back in Boston. And I met her at a trade show she was doing. I feel like it was longer than five years ago, but I guess... I think I showed in 2014, 2014. so the first delivery I made was in 2015, in the spring. Yeah, Yeah. and I remember actually the day we met because you, in addition to showing your beautiful sweaters and dresses, you were handing out flower garlands. Yes, they were jasmine flowers. Jasmine flower (laughs) garlands with every person who was taking your lookbooks and stuff, and that was just so beautiful. (laughs) And then... I've kind of become friends with Marissa since we moved to Philadelphia. She actually lives a 10 minute walk from here. Yes, just a few blocks down the street. We're here today and we're gonna talk to her about her line, how she started it and kind of all parts of her business and things like that. So let's just start with a question. Could you just introduce yourself and your brand a little bit for everyone who either might know it or might not know it? Sure, Uh, my name is Marissa Maximo. So I started the brand Anak, which actually means my child in Filipino. It's the name that my mom's called me since I was since I was a baby and still calls me that today. So I started the brand in 2014, as we talked about, but really first delivered or shipped to stores in 2015. So prior to that, I worked 15 years in corporate. I was um, in a corporate retail business. I was a um, design director um, for 15 years working with textiles, color, um, artwork like print and embroidery. I also uh, curated pop-up shops and um, worked on uh, content. So when I started Anak, I was very excited to work on a much smaller intimate project um, and work uh, direct to my production. Uh, when I started Anak, uh, I wanted to focus on a smaller project working direct to my production with artisans in India and both on a nonprofit uh, level as well as working with uh, small owned factories. And I mainly work with artisans in India, though I've also worked with artisans in Bolivia as well as Mongolia. That's great. And that was for your knitwear. Yes, so my knitwear. And then your silks and cottons are all done in India. They all come from India and the thinking behind that is to work direct to the source in terms of material. So most of our fabrics have been hand-woven. They are natural dyed or azo-free, which means a low-impact chemical use. That's awesome. I didn't know what azo meant before, though I hear yeah. it sometimes, but I never looked it up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also, just to throw this out there, Elise has also interned yes. and then worked for Marissa for a few years while yeah. she's been in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, and that's because I was working with Julia and then I was like, I need an internship. And Julia's like, I got you. And Elise <laughs> was still in school at the yeah, time. Yeah, I was still in school. And so then I ended up going and interning for Marissa. And then I stayed on after the internship. And it was really interesting. It's interesting to compare both portions because it's from production to the clothing and then also the retail end, which is really interesting because I feel like a lot of times you don't, if you're doing one, you're not doing the other as well. And so. I thought that was always really interesting. Yeah, I think the more experience you have with the different part of the circle of the fashion industry, the more better you can do in any one, because you can always think, oh, so-and-so is going to need this. Yeah. 
And also you can understand if someone's like, oh, it's late. And you'll be like, well, what does late mean? But then yeah. you know that lots of stuff can come up. Companies that design in India are late because there's a monsoon and they right. can't dry the fabric or whatever. And so things like that, I feel if you don't know one side, you probably won't understand it. But now I do. So, <laughs> no, we're very fortunate to have had Elise, particularly because the company is, is predominantly myself. So it's a one-woman show, but with the great help of an uh, intern. Elise and Elise was really one of our first interns. And also having a, I have a business associate who helps with more of the business development and finance, but all of the creative and literally the packing ship, as mm-hmm. Elise talked about, is done by myself. And you have huge shipments that are now coming yes. in. I remember you telling me you got your first, everything was on one pallet, one pallet. recently. Yes. Yes. yes, So I graduated to a pallet, <laughs> which means it's, it's, a, it's a wooden flat of, of um, stacked boxes, and it, it weighs quite a ton. Yeah. <laughs> Literally quite a ton. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like seven feet tall yes. of just boxes oh. of stuff that then yes. you have to inventory, you got to QC, as we talked about before, quality control, and you got to go over it, and then you got to repack it and get it back out there. And deal with logistics for shipping internationally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's a lot, a lot of coordination to do that. And you also travel a lot yes. for your brand. When I first met you, you were going to India, I feel like, two to three times a year. Yes. To when help I... <laughs> with production and all parts of it and finding new resources. Exactly. When I first started the brand, I was actually living in India half the year. Oh, wow. So um, every person that I worked with, I really went and sourced and vetted. And there are a lot of remote artisans I work with. So they often are, you know, from like 10 hours away from a central city. So I will fly into the city, the closest town or city, and then drive six hours out. Um, most don't speak even English, but I really go to the villages to see the facilities to make sure that things are ethically run, as well as seeing what their creative possibilities are and partner with them in creating our fabrics. But yes, it, 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 it's best to work direct with the factories or the, you know, the sewers as well as the fabric. Because a lot of people send someone else or have a lot of in-between, so it's really great you've been able to go over there and oversee everything and be there and work with them. It means a lot. It means a lot of hard work. It is. (laughs) And and I think a lot of people, we don't work through an agent. Uh, We just started possibly working through someone to help us do the coordinating. But every partner that I work with, this is someone that I I found and also I I really vet. And and even I've gone to, I went to Bolivia, I went to the Highlands, um, which was, I think, 14,000 feet above sea level. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And was... (laughs) Altitude sick very badly, <laughs> um, but you know. So we'll go to all lengths to really make sure and meet everyone. And plus, the people, you know, we want to be able to have sustainable business that carries on from season to season. I think one of the most detrimental things to working with the artisans is that it's a one-time, you know, one-time effort. thing, right? So we're really focused on how to to work on the in the long game with and everyone. sustain them season after season, yes. and not just. I have these really awesome socks I want to knit right. one season and you're the only place that can yes. make them, but we don't need socks next season. No, and, and it was really, even when I worked for a big corporation, it was always the my mission to do that. So even when I worked for large production, I would really ask to see the printers or you know the fabric manufacturers to, to understand because it helps me as a designer to know what my limits are or my Mm -hmm. capabilities are in manufacturing. Did your experience working for the bigger corporations inform how you approach things now? Yeah. I mean, I was often the middleman in terms of advocating for the production team and trying to educate the home office, you know, with production. 
So it instilled empathy, but it also allowed me to understand lead time and production. And, you know, fashion is a very short calendar with a lot of high request. So in layman's terms, it just, it takes time to make quality product and, and the current industry just doesn't allow for that to happen. So what we're trying to do with a knock is a, a bit unusual or it's, it's, it's a new approach. So oftentimes I have to plan even a year ahead to work with my artisans and to develop fabric independently of the fashion calendar. So you're so. kind of finding your own ways to reinterpret how fashion should be slower Yes, I'm trying. You're trying. <laughs> it's, it's, an you, upward, it's an uphill it's an battle. battle. <laughs> what kind of things are you coming across that are making it harder for that to um, happen? Well, I mean, we work with you know a, quite a number of specialty boutiques like Ren, who we love, and we feel like we have a great partnership with the stores. When a business, when a brand is trying to grow and work with larger accounts, let's say department stores or larger e-commerce sites, the demands of fashion trends is quite high, you know, and there's not a loyalty in that relationship. So that becomes quite difficult to really build business together. I think it's also affecting the way that fashion is struggling at the moment. You know, for us, it's about the relationships, relationships with the people who do produce the product as well as the people that we sell to in terms of stores. We don't have direct to consumer yet. So our buyers, our stores are, are you know, of the closest portal that we have to consumers our customers and so it's really about the relationship and us and understanding what the needs are and for us in terms of a knock and design it's really about layering layering classic pieces one season after another and not and having a clear brand identity and, and not subject to the whims of trends. One thing I think that has always been consistent over the past five years is your brand identity is very clear mm -hmm. and well-defined and I think a lot of that comes through through all the lookbooks and the photography that you work really hard and you have people travel all over the world to shoot everything. Yes and again uh, feeling like that also has to do with our partnerships and relationships with the creative community. Mm -hmm. So fortunate we're fortunate to have great photographers that we love and that we trust and I often will go if not every shoot, go to location. Yeah, to... Marissa actually literally just yeah. flew back from L.A. last yes, night. Yes, I was in L.A. For her next lookbook that yes. she's shooting. So she's there <laughs> doing it. I wear many hats. There's a role called a producer who basically manages all the logistics. I am that. I'm carrying the suitcases. I'm steaming the, <laughs> the, the garments. garments. I'm coordinating the food, the coffee run, the, as well as working with the photographer and capturing the art direction and the imagery and the lighting. In fact, this current model was asking me because I, I was just, I was doing all the grub work. She asked me if I had something to do with the brand. So <laughs> I said, well, yes, I, I, own, I, the brand. I, I own the brand. And, and a lot of people don't realize that when they see, you know, our collection on, you know, really high end luxury websites. And are you here just to get the coffee? Yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly it. I was taking the coffee. I was, you know, yeah. <laughs> picking up the trash, yeah. packing up the bags. So I think people might not realize and this is just relevant in, in our industry. There was so much schlepping. Like there is a lot. How much, time I spent carrying just an assortment Stuff. of things is ridiculous. Right. I'm always carrying things. Always carrying things. In fact, I have the back problem to, to, to vouch <laughs> for. It. But even when I started, you know, it was many, it was 20 years ago when I started in fashion. So it was a much different era. But when I started as assistant designer, I, I joke, but it's quite true. The first couple years, I, the majority of my job was getting coffee carrying my boss's bags and shopping bags. So we, we would shop, uh, you know, we had these seasonal trips to London and Paris to see what was 
design, new designs and trends because we didn't have internet at the time, but I literally was carrying bags all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So you've really seen then, since you've worked in the industry so long, how the impact of the internet and e-commerce has, I mean, even what you were just saying, you had to go to London and Paris. You couldn't just be like, oh, I guess I'll send 20 people my line sheets. Right. You had to go to see it. Right. Which, I mean, a lot of people, almost everyone still goes in person, but it's not... Not necessarily just for like an inspiration trip where, you know, you log onto Pinterest and you search like, oh, well, yeah. look at what people are wearing in the south of France right now. And you can do that on the internet. Right. But it's a much different discovery. I mean, even when, um, you know, if I was designing a collection or, or concepting it, you know, I would go often to Portobello Market in London at the crack of dawn, like five or six when the vendors get there, rain or shine or snow. <laughs> I would wear five pairs of socks to, to, <laughs> to walk the market in and, and I didn't have a whole lot of money, but it would, you know, look, you would just, you would be surprised to what inspires you. It could be a vintage ribbon I found that had the most perfect celadon color or the little trim on the hanky that's you know deli- you know that's falling apart or even to the you know the little buttons that you know you can't find anywhere and i just feel like you can't replicate those experiences on pinterest and and what you find on pinterest is someone else's lens or filter that they've found themselves or they you know they it's already kind of predetermined that's a really great point it's um, not new cuz someone else put it up there so yeah. i've also seen it and that was facilitated it getting on there versus like digging through a box. Right. And I can attest Marissa has an incredible vintage <laughs> and antique collection. Ribbon buttons. Ribbon buttons, like gowns. Yeah. She's like just having a gown from like the turn of the century and you're like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> normal evening gown for someone who's size triple zero. And right. Like two oh, their waists were so tiny. Yeah, they were so small. Everything was very tiny. But do you yeah. feel like it's possible to still have those experiences going to Portobello Market and finding ribbons and buttons or things that you can't, you wouldn't see on Pinterest or just sometimes certain things that you used to find a lot of inspiration from? Has it become saturated or buyers are all going there? Because I know for me, I think of where I grew up near, which was Brimfield yes. Fair in Massachusetts. I grew up 20 minutes away from there. Right. I hated going there as a kid. My parents made me go because they wanted to go that. antique <laughs> shopping. But then <laughs> at some point in college, I don't remember what year it was, all of a sudden it all these hipsters from New York started showing up. I don't know if you've seen that in your travels over the years, not with Broomfield necessarily, but other things. No, it has. I mean, that's, that's exactly, it's been quite difficult now because even I try to go to little antique shops just in the middle of nowhere America. And I do feel like the Ebays or, you know, anything online or, um, you know, it's either opened up channels of people selling things, but also it's saturated the market and also I think devalued often the specialness of things. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm always on the hunt for how far to go farther mm-hmm. out, to go where More no one else has gone path, yes. sort of thing. And so a lot of it may be, you know, that really small village in India or some other place that I find. And then it gets harder and harder to find anything that becomes special. special. I know, and I think that that actually is related to how we're operating with the store now, is we're having to go more and more off the beaten path yeah. to find yeah. a brand to carry right. that isn't everywhere. Because as much as I might like a brand, if it's everywhere, I can't sell it. And I've had to become more strict with us about, hey, we love this brand, we think they're awesome, mm-hmm. but we have so much of it on sale, right. and I'm losing profit margin from it. So yeah. when that happens, I think it's all related, kind mm-hmm. of. Right. I mean, that's, to your point, I, those trips of inspiration is similar to going into a store 
that you have just a wonderful experience with. And I feel like those stores are becoming, you know, harder and harder to find as well. All that rent, it just keeps going up. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your textiles and the fabric that you use because each textile for each garment, you usually offer quite a few colors or different fabrics for each one. They all feel very special and the handle of all of them is always so nice. You, you spend a lot of time developing those, don't you? I do. It depends upon the artisans we work with. Each region in India specializes in a unique fabric. One of the main weavers we work with who we do the stripes with, mm -hmm. they're based in, in central India. They have much simpler looms often that are just located in their homes. They sit on the floor. The loom is built into the ground of the, the floor. And so they have to work on simpler construction in terms of the weaving. So a lot of times it's more about the stripes or maybe we do the plaids and then often I'll work with them on the coloring. In other regions in down in Southern India, we work with artisans that can do more patterned fabrics and different textures and then in, in West Bengal, we work with what we call, which is called Indian Jamdani, which are jacquard fabrics. That means they have a pictorial design. So it could be a polka dot, it could be a little motif, like a bird, and but their fabric's a lot thinner and sheer, and that's a traditional sari weave. So it, it, it varies upon the season and what we would like to you know, explore design-wise. Depending on which one you want to use for yes, which garments. exactly. Yeah. And so what we do is we look at each artisan group in each season and try to see um, what artwork that they're experts in. And so we, we try to respect that and be inspired by what they do rather than displace or ask them to do something that's out of their realm or out of their material capacity. Do you find that your design will come first or will you be inspired by their fabrics before you're coming up or does it both happen? I feel like I'm always time? inspired by them first. Yeah. I feel seeing them and seeing and, and what they're working on actually helps me, inspires me, or I want to be able to create something that really showcases their, their work mm -hmm. is really the goal. And I know you were telling me you're going to start working with linen now, which you haven't really done before. Yes. Linen is a very hard material uh, in terms of raw materials to find in India. So it's, it's actually expensive. It's not something that is hugely used in the area. So we found a linen weaver in southern India. We're happy how it's turned out, and we're really excited to showcase it for the next collection, which is uh, High Summer in 2020. Sounds so far away. Yeah. I'm still getting exactly. used to hearing 2020. <laughs> exactly. So that's, yeah, again, how, how, how far we have to work in advance. Do you have a favorite textile that you work with, like between uh, all the ones you mentioned, or you're naturally pulled toward always? I think the Jamdani is one of mm -hmm. my favorites. It's, it's quite beautiful. It's more commonly used for scarves. Find for garments... Um, it's very specific, so often it's not for everybody in terms of the customers. And since it's so sheer, we often have to create a slip to go underneath. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's the most beautiful. You know, I'm hoping we can figure out other ways to elaborate on it. They're always just so beautiful. Yeah, we love looking at them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you want to talk a bit about why you choose to use, like, handwoven fabrics? I mean, obviously for, well, I don't know if this is obvious, but for Jamdani, you can't really machine it. Right. But versus... The stripes and the plaids, why you choose to use the artisanal handmade ones versus a much less expensive machine made? That's a good question. Mainly because the artisans of India, I mean, fabric is their life, essentially. One of the biggest crafts of India, and it's a dying craft. So it's mainly to help preserve the craft and also provide employment for these artisans who live so remotely. Otherwise, they would have to leave their villages and move to cities and our work outside of, you know, their, basically their training. And often as well, that 
it's difficult for women to be employed in, in India as well. So this is this allows them to work at home to take care of the family as well as even have a family business. Often a husband and wife can work together on the fabrics. Um, if the husband weaves, the woman may uh, prepare the loom or spin the uh, the bobbins for the uh, for the weaving. So it's mainly due to that. I mean, there's other great aspects of India in terms of their craft and, and textiles. There's printing, particularly block printing, and then as well as a certain dyeing. Um, but this, the weaving had seemed the best idea in terms of a more universal appeal mm -hmm. and incorporating it into the collection. Mm -hmm. And we also still love just the feel of the fabric. Uh, that's really important that's to a, us. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's my favorite thing about the handwoven. It just has this magical kind of like soft like air yes. it feels like air right um, yeah which sounds really artsy and abstract but, <laughs> oh, but if you've seen marissa's clothing yeah. they float they right. <laughs> the body which i mean i don't want to generalize about india but i tend to think of it as a hotter climate so yes. maybe it's based on that feeling that you don't want things to i guess stick to you yeah and so this floating element i guess is probably pretty important to the clothing there and it just is so beautiful and unique to what most people I think have around here. I yes. I love it personally. <laughs> I appreciate that wasn't that. like a mean question. Well, <laughs> no, well the wearability is very yeah. important. Uh, I mean, I personally don't like anything synthetic on my body, mm -hmm. and I can feel it. And particularly when I I am working in hot weather, I mean, you want something to breathe yeah. and and to be able to wear it. And I can if I'm in in hot climate, I, I can't have anything synthetic on me or mm -hmm. even animal fiber like silk is still very hot, but yeah. which we often offer for more of the cold weather mm -hmm. months. Speaking of fabrics and temperatures, I've noticed that, so you switched about a year and a half ago, two years ago from doing fall, winter to spring and spring, summer to doing summer, high summer and resort. And I just wondered what precipitated that change and you decided to go in more of a direction with the summer pieces. Cause I know at the shop, summer is our stronger season. Sure. And a lot of your clothing is very airy and floaty, like you said, and I'm just wondering what, what led to that transition. It's been an evolving process, much as we talked about the materials of the collection, the collection's dictated by the natural fibers and the fabrics that we use. So since we're working predominantly in India, they've been lighter spring-summer weight fabric. So with that, it's been a challenging path because the industry wants to put us into categories. And we don't feel like we really fit into just one category. So we have tried resort, and that mainly just means that we're selling to hotter climate stores year-round or more than just the, the summer seasons. But I'm finding that we, I know that limits us um, because we have other capabilities as the hand knits that we talked about and working with Bolivia. And that's something I, we'd like to pick up again to explore. And I think also not be pigeoned into one category. We just think of a knock as a brand. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's dictated obviously by the materials that we use, but we don't think of ourselves exclusively really for re one market like resort. What season is your favorite to kind of work on designing or type of clothes? They call it pre-spring mm -hmm. slash resort, which <laughs> really means it's the first delivery of spring. So it could be the end of year. It could be let's say early November before everyone goes on holiday mm -hmm. and it, or in January when everybody comes back. And I think it's just, to me, the launch of, you know, spring season. And happy weather. And happy weather. So that I have the most fun with, with that um, because I love that, those prospects. I like designing in season in the sense, even though I work ahead, 
just it's about feeling the clothes and thinking about being in the clothes and what you're doing and where you're going rather than it often just being like a concept to push down to the customer it helps when you really encompass the weather or you know kind of what goes on during those months is really it must be really hard if you're in winter to yes. design summer or vice versa yes because yes. i don't know for me i feel better designing the thing whenever in the moment, in the moment. yeah and you're feeling like i need whatever this is yeah. well that's often why i just end up designing early, early so yeah. when we present something like high summer we're going to paris now in january to present it and it's you know it's quite skimpy and bare <laughs> which is why i was in los angeles shooting but in new york we would have had to show in december and, and it, it is disjointed and that's kind of the struggle with working with the calendar, calendar. or the fashion industry what would you like to see if you could change the industry how would you like it to look in terms of the calendar right. and how things worked. It's quite demanding in terms of the larger, let's say, department stores or store accounts. They want many deliveries. Mm -hmm. So I almost wish that there was more time in between the markets. Um, we need at least 90 days to work properly with our manufacturers or our artisans, and 90 days is still very tight. It doesn't make any sense because the time between markets is less than 90 days so it can be you know 60 days or 70 days so very hard to be pushed by the market calendar and yet respect the production time that not only does my own team need but then my also my manufacturers need. yeah of course so i would wish for more than 90 days in between market and, and it, it doesn't quite seem to be that way i don't know how come but it it, it isn't and then let alone the deliveries are so you know, also often can be early as well. Well, maybe walk us through the time from when you get an order at a show right. to when you ship it in terms of time. Or should like, we go farther back to where it's designed okay, and yeah, sampled? we could start there. How it goes like from the design to the <laughs> sure, store. Sure, yeah, like just in terms floor. of time to show people right. how yeah. much time you need. I mean, from... Designing-wise, I feel like often, sadly, that gets cut short. Let's say we're showing the collection for High Summer. We were meant to show in New York in December, but we actually had to cancel it because we didn't have the samples in time. But we have to show in January, end of January. I'll work a little forward and a little backwards, maybe, to demonstrate it. So we showed the collection in January in Paris, end of January. And it takes any, I mean, we ask the buyers to submit their order within two weeks. <laughs> oftentimes, a lot of buyers won't be respectful of that, and they'll take up to four weeks. And oftentimes, then I say, no, I can't do it because I can't, I can't jeopardize my manufacturing for, for those who are, are late in that regard. And it's really, it's really disrespectful in that sense. So now we're into, you know, let's say, February, early February by the time we get an order. Again, larger accounts might want their summer as early as April or March, and that's impossible because you can take... <laughs> well, it's like you needed a little yeah. magic yeah. fairy to wave their it's wand just and the say... The math doesn't match up. It takes 90 days from when an order is even given, and that's without any problems. That's without yeah. any monsoons. That's and without that's, any yeah. flooding or any anything and so it's just it's just pure math so and also you have to after you get all your orders you have to go through and make yes. sure you have enough orders of each That's unit right. to have that go into absolutely production. we at least need two weeks internally just to process every order so that we can we can distribute it to our, our teams to our, you know our fabric people order fabric dye fabric you know let alone work on the fittings and then you still have to cut and sew and then you still have to have quality control and inspection and then you have to pack and ship and 
you know, and even shipping things that might take, you know, as much as a week to go through product, you know, the customs and so forth. So it's a very long process, but it's, it's ironic, but it also impossible the way that the, it's set up. It makes no sense. And it's actually quite hard, particularly when larger accounts are wanting to get on board with quote unquote slow fashion, mm, or quote unquote yeah. ethical fashion, but they don't really mean it or support the system for it. So almost it would seem like it'd be ideal if you could show this collection in November. Exactly. In a way. Like you right. want to be a few months before right. that. So it exactly. seems we so just need more months. We just need more months. We need to keep yeah. pushing things earlier and later, I guess, right. at the same time. Right. Like, or having people be more flexible, willing to work with you to be like, oh, okay, we really want this, but we understand that there is a woman sitting right. in her floor, in her loom, weaving this, and so then it's got to go from her loom to then a factory right. to cut it and sew it and then clean it and pack it and ship it and get it to you, and then you have to pack it and ship it. And it's like, I feel like people just need to be more understanding, but for big companies, that's not part of the ethos. It then, isn't. But, but the big companies put everything on sale so quickly, too. Maybe they give it one and a half or two months tops before it right. goes on sale. I think. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's one brand we carry that is carried in a lot of big stores. And I remember the agent telling me, okay, these are the markdown yeah. dates. And I'm like, I've had this like a month or like, yeah. right. that, but, she, but she's targeting it towards the people a big that, store, yeah. right. a department store. And the, the bigger, in the big stores, I think the system is antiquated. I mean, I think they want to get, they want to get on board with the marketing buzz mm -hmm. of, of ethical fashion, but they're not set up for it and they don't support it. And they're not, they are unwilling to budge and to adapt to the times. So often, and it's a, it's a very unfair situation for any small designer, even small retailer like yourself, who, you know, is competing with markdowns. The other thing that we compete with is that larger stores, they order a larger prod amount of product, but they don't provide us for any prepayments or down payments or deposits, which very much hurts us because we have to pay our artisans on time and before do we receive to, fabric. Do you have to pay a deposit with your factory? I have to pay a deposit with my factories and my fabric. And with my fabric, because these are artisans, these aren't big, big manufacturers, I have to pay them hundred percent when they complete the job mm -hmm. and yet these larger stores are even asking for net terms that are quite extensive mm -hmm. so as a small designer I have to front a whole lot of money which is just impossible to do and I think you've also told me about I didn't know about this until you told me about it is the buyback yes which I don't think you do that with anybody no, we but do not. it exists <laughs> and you told me about maybe if you can explain that to people who don't know what that is yeah so for larger and I would say prominent stores who 20 years ago you know a designer would have been maybe you know jumping for joy to be in or who you know 20 years ago would have been influential and have, could have made or break um, a brand really now want to ask for buybacks where a pro if a product doesn't sell through a certain percentage, they expect the designer to buy it back from them. And that it's, yeah, it's <laughs> insane. It is. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's again, an unfair climate because, you know, when a buyer buys, they're committed, they're buying because they believe in something and they own the goods and, and to be and to ask a designer to take that back. I mean, especially since Enoch doesn't have any direct consumer channels, we don't sell on e-commerce. We, you know, we pride ourselves on the relationships with our stores and their edit. 
that it that becomes a liability for us to then have product come back. So we've had to say no to quite prominent established uh, stores because of this. And will they come back and work with you then? Or once you say no, that's it, they're not interested in you? Uh, you know, one store, you know, who it came back three times, but I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> and I still said no. Yeah. Maybe the next one might say, might ask again, but it's still something that we have to stay firm on. And it's not just to protect Anok itself, but it's to protect Anok and all of our partners. I mean, once you have to eat the cost of it, how can you then have the money to front it the next, next season? season? Right. Yeah, it's just, it's implausible and you can't pay anyone. And these people would like to get paid. And, and with that, that also might mean we need to reduce what we're able to sell or what our capacity is so that we can maintain sustainable relationships with our artisans as well. We don't want to grow so quickly that um, we're not able to provide for them the following season, as you said. It's interesting to see stores are on all levels over ordering right and that's a big problem i think and if stores would just be a little more kind of analyzing the data from different right. seasons what sold well for them and what hasn't then maybe they wouldn't have to ask for things like right. that because obviously they're being risky and whatever it is so maybe instead of making a big order because i know so many people are like oh this store came to me and they placed a huge order but then they don't come back the next season yeah. right so and i've actually asked stores to to like large stores to consider reducing their order mm -hmm. or I'll say no to how large that is because it also dilutes the market and also it is contributing to the sale problem that you speak about. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd rather just sell a few amount and we'd rather sell through the product and have yeah. you know, success there. When we sell through something within, I don't know, the first couple of weeks mm -hmm. and then we're like, oh, we're so excited we sold through it and we're so much happier about that and then we're like, we missed the thing and then yeah. if we, it's weird, we've noticed if we reorder the thing that we sold out of, it won't sell. No, no. It's very strange and right. people act like they want more but right. they're lying. They, they don't want <laughs> they, they don't. Or it's like they find the new thing that they then yeah. want instead they just, of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I guess that's something interesting to talk about is the idea of always having to reinvent yourself. Like right. needing to see new things yeah. constantly. And I think that's been a another challenging um, issue for us in the industry because we we're less about trends. We're more about creating pieces that can carry it from season to season, and that the customer can wear for a duration, not only in quality but also in trends. And it's been somewhat opposing because we're being asked by say like our showroom to create new trends or or things that are, aren't our dna mm -hmm. we can't do that i mean in a sense all that we have left at the end of the day is, is our identity who we are and what we can provide for the market our point of view for us to chase to look like somebody else makes no sense or to be something that we're not well for example all the you know most of our pieces are meant to be easy fitting and oversized mm -hmm. or or just about ease and all for all types body we were recently asked to create things with less volume, less volume. And, and, and we have an element of sexy, but it's a very understated way and it's, it's a yeah. bit of a surprise, not an overt detail, but it's just not who we are and, and we can't turn ourselves into a pretzel to, to create something that's inauthentic to us. Exactly. Yeah. No, you have of, to stay true yeah. to yourself. And then you essentially become like a private, private label to right. the showroom or for the major department stores being like, oh, I want this and this and this, but you're a brand that wants to stay being a brand, right. like to stand on your own. Right. And so keeping that we are who we are and we will not take out volume. 
add <laughs> volume. Volume is such an interesting thing yeah. for us too because we have this weird combination of people who are always asking for things to be smaller, but that they like the look of the big thing. Right. And I'm like, well, you can't have Both. the big thing. <laughs> you can't have more volume and less volume at the same time. But at the same time, we're trying to be size inclusive and carry yes. the whatever the full size range is. Right. We just get it wrong a lot of the time. We don't yeah. order the right things. And No, I think it's it's hard because, again, people, I mean... I, because I worked for both of you guys, so I was like, oh, volume everywhere. And then I was trying to find summer dresses, and I was like, why are all of these summer dresses tight? <laughs> like, I know, because I don't want summer, them to I don't touch, want to touch me. me. And right. so it was weird because I went from being in the Ren and Anak universe to trying to find <laughs> like a cotton dress, and I couldn't find one that wasn't tight in the bodice. Okay, I like the look of like tight in the bodice and flary, but when it's 100 degrees and 100% humidity, I don't want to sweat through whatever I'm wearing. And right. so it's just this interesting thing that oversized is practical, right. I think, in some regards. And how it is, you require confidence to wear it. Right. And not that if you don't wear it, you're not confident. It's just that people are very odd about it. I think it's yeah. all, it comes all down to how they want to be perceived yeah. as right. a woman. And they think they have to fit in a certain category. Right. And then a lot of it will come back to, oh, my partner, my husband, yeah. my right. spouse doesn't, like that. doesn't right. like that. And I'm like... Well, do you like it? Because that's right. what's important. Yeah. <laughs> no, and that's exactly... I mean, we often joke, just even design-wise, we have um, a pair of pants, let's say, that are, are quite big where they might have a slight drop crotch. We call that the man-repeller pants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think But the woman the will feel very comfortable and yeah. loves it, but then, yes, it, it may so, not be perceived oh, as... You know. Yeah, the pant that the husband or boyfriend hates. And yes. Like, oh, like, do you have to wear that? You guys probably... I don't know why you know this, but I'm 5'11", and so when I come out to the store, people are like, oh, this is just tall people clothes. Yes. And then I have to be like, well, the owner of the boutique is actually quite <laughs> tiny and short. She wears the stuff, and so, no, it's not just... A tall person thing. I just happen to be tall. Like I'm not working here because I, well, I hope I'm not working here because I'm tall. But um, sorry, I hired you just because you're tall, so you can reach things so for can, me. Yeah, so I can freak people out when they're like, "Oh, there's just too much." Yeah, I think that's um, you know, personal fashion is really interesting, and I think that both Anak and Ren both are very, I guess, kind of like iconic. Like you can tell what like because one of Marissa's bustling dresses is this giant <laughs> massive dress that tends to be in silk and it's amazing and it's huge but it's weirdly like it's but a little it's sexy not. too yeah. right 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 and it's weird that it's big and sexy yeah and it's right. a fun combination all the way right it's just a v-neck and you can wear the v-neck in the front or the back but it's just it's this massive dress that I mean, six meters you. are in there yeah because <laughs> there's like a lot of fabric in it. <laughs> it feels very chic when you wear it even though Technically, I mean, the amount of skin showing is very little. Right. And so I think it's this whole, the confidence, and then also, like, the secret sexy. Right. Like, the <laughs> understated, there's something very chic about wearing a lot of clothes. And I feel like older women kind of get it. Like, the women right. who are, like, layered and wearing lots of stuff. It just, it, there's something inherently cool about it that I think people maybe aren't super into. Right. Or they're scared. They're scared right. to be a man repeller. And I think... That's, I mean, uh, the blog man repeller talks about that. Right. Um, but that how, you know, it's like you should dress for you and dress for, I mean, not like other women or right. whatever. It's it's what you like. And I feel that a lot of people, when couples come into the store, it's really interesting because either the boyfriend or husband or partner is pulling all this stuff. And it's like, oh, you got to try this on. You got to try this on. And they're pulling these like massive giant pieces. And it always feels really kind of like 
congrats. Like, that's really cool that your partner is not going for, like, the tiny, tiny short right. shorts and the little crop top or whatever. Because we have a lot of short shorts yeah, here. We have so right. many, also known as no short shorts. Interesting. Or you'll have the husband who's like, oh, God, what is that? Right. And I think that it's both of the brand, like, both Ren and Anak are both kind of walking that line of women tend to love it and men either love it or hate it. But, again, does it matter what they think? And, again, I mean... There's lots of options. Right. And I think you can wear whatever the heck you want. Well, it's interesting because often people who aren't comfortable wearing the large volume often say they think it's a skinny person's um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. clothing. But I'm not skinny in that regard. I mean, I always say I have hips and I have a chest. And, and so I always, um, when we design something, I always feel I do the wear test. Mm-hmm. So to see if I feel comfortable in it. And do you design with yourself in mind a lot of the time, or are you envisioning somebody else? Because you said you do the wear test. Had you been envisioning yourself wear, whatever that is, or you're, you're testing it for other people more, or both? I partly envision myself, but I partly also envision a, a fabulous... <laughs> a fabulous <laughs> so, Where I get to go to, uh, to these wonderful warm weather places or travel the world in. It's a combination. Yeah. I mean, I think... I mean, I don't consider Anak really a fashion brand per se. I just feel like we know that we make clothes and we we try to make, you know, comfortable, beautiful clothes that will also allow a woman to feel sensual or, I mean, that's kind of a hard word to to say, but just that they'll feel beautiful in. Mm -hmm. And that's the most rewarding thing when I hear women say that. And that's why I often say to try something on and see it. Exactly. And our product does much better when it's in person and when women, you know, go into the store, they touch it, they see, they feel the soft fabric or they put it on and they don't expect this huge dress to to drape beautifully on their body. That's so interesting you mentioned that because we were talking about voluminous things is we had someone come in last summer and buy the light pink version of the gypsy dress, Uh which is the wide one we're talking about. And seeing her come in, she wasn't a person I would have expected to right. want to have a wide dress but right. she like she went for it she tried that and one other thing on she was trying to decide between the two but I could tell she just felt very classy right, right. away yeah. right. in the light pink one I said you're gonna get that <laughs> and she lives up the street so you should get right. it for that reason yeah. too. Right. Um, so I think just putting it on yeah. I don't think she would have gone to it naturally right. but the second she put it on right yeah it feels so different and that's amazing no because we and so when I put myself into the clothes per se, I use myself as, as a filter. If I don't feel comfortable in it, if I don't believe in it, then you know it's 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 no good in my mind. It just can't live as a as a as a concept that's isolated. It has to kind of really be something I'd want to wear or think other people would want to wear. But there is an element of fantasy that I think fashion allows us to do and dream of, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. things. And so there's an element where I envision, <laughs> you know, that I can wear that, you know, on the beach or, you know, in some little far off island. Do you feel like you ever get to go to the little far off islands and when you put the clothes on, does it feel as good as the fantasy? That's kind of a weird question, maybe, but... Well, I haven't quite had the luxury of entirely doing that, but I do, I do have a dream of doing store visits, as I say, uh-huh. like, let's oh, yes. go to St. Bart's, let's go to Capri, uh-huh. <laughs> let's, you know, go to the, you know, those islands. But of those times, like, that I do have the privilege to go on holiday and, like, we were, my, um, my partner and I were just in a little place in um, 
in southern Italy and we you know we just stayed in little places along the beach they're quite small and remote and just usually the nonas like the grandmas and the grandpas <laughs> so it wasn't anything fancy but I do wear a knock head to toe all the time it's, it's something easy to pack and also something I feel like I can just roll and, and roll out of and, and 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 I feel good that I and I can feel like I um you know elegant as well as practical in that way yeah, and all the clothes are really lightweight, so they're easy yeah. to pack. Yes, and, <laughs> and you'd also done a residency in Mexico. Oh yeah, that's so funny. A, I was just gonna say. Yeah, that. <laughs> you had. Um, I think it was a dinner, and you dressed oh, everyone yes. in a knock, and it just looked like magic. Oh, that was a really special time. I mean, that that was um, it was the first time in a long time that I, I've been able to do an artist residency. Mm -hmm. So I was in Oaxaca, Mexico, which is a gem of a place for all artists and creativity. I mean, between the textiles, the pottery, and on top of that, the food. Um, it's just, it's a heaven for all of those you know, those uh, visuals as well as um, experiences. So we had, I was fortunate enough to have the residency with uh, several artists. So we had a ceramicist. We, we had actually two ceramicists, a, a painter, a dancer, a couple writers, and then two food um, people. And so it was also around the world. A nice group. A great group. And it was all women. And we had a woman from Australia, a woman from Vancouver, um, a woman who was based in the States, but originally is from Africa. So it was, it was certainly a great mix. And then we had a, the last night was this dinner um, that Lisa was talking about. The Australian chef was able to really work with, with the local foods that she found, the spices or the local produce and focused on, uh, you know, gluten-free kind of recipes as well as vegetarian recipes. And she made a group dinner for all of us. And all the girls picked out their Anak dresses that they could identify with. And, um, and, and they were, they were women who would, they wouldn't think that, that they would like or, or would be interested in kind of these volumes, but it was, they just, when they put them on, they completely transformed. We had a mini impromptu group photo shoot like on the rooftop <laughs> and they were basically dancing and twirling around uh -huh. in, in it. And, um, Another woman who's also a chef and, and a writer who's based in Los Angeles, and she she said that she wore it to an event in L.A. and, and was was told that she looked like a goddess. Goddess <laughs> She's like, yeah. I've never have had that told to me before, so she was very appreciative. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's so great, and I think you just are always seeking out experiences like that mm -hmm. to kind of further your brand and your line because you also did a dyeing workshop in India is that yes. what it was so you're just always kind of growing the brand with I don't want to call them extracurricular activities <laughs> but like you're yeah. very good at meeting people and experiencing right. yeah. things and thinking how can I take this to the Absolutely. next level yeah. no it's it like embedded in the DNA of the brand. Of the brand, yeah. yeah. So actually, so last year, so last February, I did do an indigo dyeing workshop just on in um, just outside of Jaipur with a you know a family-run generation after generation of working in indigo dye. I did a um, what they call mud printing, so it's block printing mm -hmm. with mud. Uh, that they they would make themselves and they would scour from the local um, you know areas. Uh, we print with the mud and then we would dye in natural indigo. And so that actually found its way uh, into the collection. So the collection that you currently have in store with the the indigo and the dip dyeing and the tie dye is um, was definitely inspired by that, by that time. So then you can really just see something come to fruition yes. months yeah. later. Absolutely, it really has to. It has to mean something in some regard that there's just so much uh, out there in terms of product. And I, I almost even feel so much noise mm -hmm. that it's it's quite can be quite intimidating and scary to navigate through that as a designer. But 
do you have a hard time deciding then which kinds of things you want to focus on when you're looking for these kinds of activities to do? Because there's a lot. Or there's maybe... a lot, and there's a lot of, you know, kind of things that come, come and go, and, and they're just phases, but, you know, that are experience in terms of being what's offered. So mm -hmm. I try to really use an internal filter and, and say, you know, see if it really resonates. So even the time I was in Oaxaca, I was trying to figure out how do I incorporate my experience to the next collection. So, you know, and there's a lot of sensitivity. You, know, you, you can't quite incorporate literal things from your experience because that would be appropriation. Or I can't quite, manufacturing there doesn't quite exist in the areas that I was in. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. So I have to percolate or process and extract what came from my experience. Is it something quite literal as production? Is it something to do with the color, the texture of the, you know, the places I went to, or even about the people I met? So, and, and so that's something I really have to kind of take inside and, and, and figure out. Certainly not, not, not something that, that's uh, obvious or immediate. You also build quite a bit of a community too around mm -hmm. through all your travels. You've met a lot of people. You have, I don't know, I feel like you always are mentioning, well, <laughs> yeah. so-and-so over there. And yes. I'm like, oh, you have a network all over the yeah. world. Well, I, that yeah. really, it's you, been the saving grace. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I tell everybody, I mean, even when I was in Los Angeles, it's been several years since I started the brand and, and since I've been out in LA. But I felt I had only had really a long weekend. I, I shot all, all day on Friday and I had two days of power packed meetings just to see people. And I feel like it's all that we have as a as small small businesses and, and brands. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a friend who designs who designed shoes, another friend who makes you know, hand makes leather bags or others who um, you know, are photographers, mm -hmm. writer, food people and you know, and I really feel it's how we can support one another. Mm -hmm. um, Lord knows, you know, as a small brand we don't don't make a whole lot of money or, you know, I'm still trying to work towards paying myself <laughs> at some point. It's really the reciprocation as much as we can. And again, having had corporate experience in, in a big, big brand, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that gets kind of put out there. I'd rather not. And if I'm going to do anything, any, any kind of work, it wants, I want it to be with the people I care about or who I want to work with and how we can grow and how we can reciprocate to one another. That's something that Elise and I have been talking about a lot lately is a weird combination of growing and shrinking at the same time, yes. <laughs> which I think is something we're going to be trying to hone in on a lot recently. And we've had conversations with a few brands that we carry like yourself about the idea of growing and growing in a way that is good for your brand and to be sustainable, but also kind of shrinking back at the right. same time a little bit. Right. Like, I think we were adding things for a long time and now we're kind of being like, I don't know, reining it in a little bit. Cause yeah. how many dresses does the world really need right. for, for our customers? Cause right. we would have this thing happen where a customer would fixate on a, a silhouette and then they'd be like, we want it in five colors and then mm -hmm. kind of being like, well, we do well with that, but do we, do we need to do that? Sure. Like, and, and, and how what, many, uh, how many customers are there for that one, one dress? Exactly. We hit the wall and then we have 20 of that one dress sitting on the store and no one right. wants it anymore. Yeah. Or also I'm trying to think what other ways we're not just doing that with clothes, but other ways yeah. to grow and shrink at the same. It's a weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, mindful is like a buzzword, but it's like mindful growth. Mm -hmm. Right, like mindful movements within the business is figuring out how, I guess, where you want to keep going. I mean, not everyone can obviously keep growing, but I feel like a lot of people just think peripherally, like the whole point of business is to just grow and grow and grow until 
you're like the next Everlane. But right. You don't want to be Everlane. No. Like that's not your interest. So there has to be some point where a small business is like, okay, this is the cap. This is as far as I want to go. This is right. as far as I can go. This makes me happy. Right. Like everything is moving smoothly. Um, I guess it's kind of, maybe it's like the um, high-end designers, like design houses. But see, the thing is that most of them don't do couture, which is, you know, the made-to-order things. They, they're run on the ready-to-wear. So maybe that's not a good example like but you're meaning small. like Chanel is happy with how Chanel is. Yeah, is that yeah, what you yeah. mean? Like, like Chanel yeah. has no more aspirations. Yeah, like Chanel's, yeah, they're set. Like maybe they can't <laughs> run off of like the handmade pieces that they right. make. But So with the large uh, design houses, I think a lot of people don't realize what is the bread and butter. So it's not the couture or the runway. It might be the, the small bottle of perfume mm-hmm. or the little wallet or handbag that they can sell a lot of. And that's the advantage with the design houses. Um, Whereas the small designer, we don't really operate in that capacity. The Comme yeah. des Garçons heart striped yeah. t-shirts. Exactly. Yeah. And like More of those are selling than yeah. her dresses. Exactly. Yeah. Like other brands that have kind of stayed small but kind of reached their goal. Right. And they're just kind of happily sitting in where they are and they're not, world domination is not their goal. No. Like I feel like over time, even before I had a store, I was watching stores. I can think of a few. This was like 10 years ago. And I was like, oh, it's so cute like I love mm-hmm. it and then they started to grow and grow and then all of a sudden everything got lost yeah it loses personality and I, I guess I get scared of that for so me. do I <laughs> yeah like I, we go to these shows and we think oh we want to find new brands but do we really want to find new brands right yeah I think it is as you mentioned that fine line I mean I, I kind of call right now I mean we were fortunate enough to grow quite exponentially this past year but I feel like I really have to pump the brakes right mm-hmm. now like I don't want to go too fast and I can't afford, obviously, to stop. That's not what we're, you know, have in mind. But I think it's just, it is where, you know, what's the comfortable spot. Speaking of growth and things like that, I know that in the industry, in the U.S., there's always so much pressure on anyone in the fashion community that they have to be in New York in order to exist in any capacity, yeah. whether you're a designer or you are a store or whatever. And you've been in Philly for how long now? I moved to Philadelphia in 1995. So You've been here over, a while. Over 20-some years, yes. And so talk to me about that. Have you thought of moving other places in your time and your development of Anak and things like that? Or have you been told you should do that? And what made you stay? Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because when I moved to Philadelphia in 95, I didn't expect to be here for so long. <laughs> um, I'm not from Philadelphia. I actually had... Uh, was living in New York prior to coming here. I just recently had graduated from art school. And you went I, to RISD, right? I went to RISD and I was a painter. So I was trying to make a living as painting. And so what brought me to Philadelphia was that it was way more affordable to have a studio on paint than obviously New York. So when I opened a knock, I actually reconsidered leaving Philadelphia that I thought I had to be in an area close to um, other designers. So I looked into going to New York and I also looked at Los Angeles. With New York... Pricing as it is, I mean, the closest neighborhood that I could relocate to was Crown Heights or something of that. So it still was like an hour and a half outside of Manhattan um, and not such a great neighborhood at that time. Or even Los Angeles, the same thing. The real estate was so expensive that the decision to stay in Philadelphia was two part, was really the financial and the quality of life that I have found as much as I love New York or LA and, and traveling to other cities. I need the, the space to have to have a in 
creative capability or creative thinking and the quality of life that enables me to do that. And I feel that Philadelphia allows me that. And you can still get to New York really easily when you need to for yes. meetings. So when I go into New York, I just end up driving. It's maybe an hour and a half, two hours um, or more, depending on traffic. But it's I look forward to coming home. I look forward <laughs> to coming home at night. I look forward to having the peace of mind and, and you know, and I don't necessarily have a fear of missing out anymore at my, at my age. And, and so it's really about having the, the sanity and uh, the peace of mind that has kept me in Philadelphia. And, you know, and I'm near enough an airport and I'm near my family who are a couple hours away that that's important to me rather than being in a, in a it city. And we're fortunate now with the internet and being able to the gig economy that so many people now do work remotely. And I think that's opened up a lot of potential, but I also think it's affected a lot of cities. So even something like Los Angeles, a lot of people have migrated from New York to New to LA. And I've, I've, I've heard over and over how real estate's gone up so much in LA now. It's even becoming more expensive for me as even as a designer to, to work out there. Yeah. Was part of the reason you ever considered moving to LA or New York was that were you ever considering having part of your production and done in one of those people because if people don't know who are listening to this a lot of production done in the US are done in and around LA yes. or in the garment district in Manhattan it was I mean I actually when I first started a knock I did do some production in Los Angeles and, and that why that is why I was looking to be out there but it's it's quite challenging uh, because the way that I can't speak too much for New York, but at least with Los Angeles, the way that the production is set up, it's not vertical. So if you want to have a pattern made by somebody, you you know you have to go to someone in a certain part of town. And then if you want to, what we call grading, if you want to make patterns for extra small, small, medium, large, you have to then go to somebody else who then creates that. And then if you want to have a sample made, you have to go to someone else. Or if you want any special stitching, like smocking or any kind of detailing, that's somebody else. So everything becomes outsourced. And then and you have to, it's up to you to connect all the dots. And you have to connect all the dots. And just the carbon footprint alone for that was quite difficult, let alone efficient way of working or economic way of working. So when I work with my tailors in India, it's, it's all vertical. So at least the sample, the pattern making, everything is done vertically. And it, it's, it's a little less, you know, it's less disjointed in that regard. So you, you try to say soup to nuts as much as you can. <laughs> would you ever consider moving to one of these places in the future, maybe? I wouldn't. Or I would be, about it? I would be open to it. Um, I mean, not probably so much New York, um, but maybe Los Angeles. But really, I don't really feel the necessity. I feel that as I, you know, as long as I have a, a comfortable, you know, manageable quality of life, I think, and I'm, I'm near enough to an airport. <laughs> I, I think I'm okay. It's, it's, I don't think I feel dictated by the city. I think I, I feel comfortable. I mean, the Anak office is, is located in my home. So, and, and as a small business, it's still very much there. I still pack everything in the kitchen and um you know the samples the uh, storage we have is in my bedroom so if anything i would like to eventually expand and be able to have a, a separate office or studio but i spend most of my time you know in that space that i'm not really looking outside of myself except when i go on these you know these trips mm -hmm. to work with um, our artisans or you know kind of explore places this is kind of jumping back to a different topic slightly, but all of a sudden it hit me and I was like, oh, I should talk about that. Is So you do markets in New York yes. and Paris. Yes. 
What are the differences between the two for you as a designer in terms of the, the buyer that comes there? Is it is it different kinds of stores or I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. how do they feel different to you? It's It, it varies wildly and I, I didn't anticipate it would. With our Paris market, our showroom presents the collection twice a year in Paris. And I feel as though Paris is interested in just the, the, the product. You know, they're interested in a beautiful product. They're not so concerned about brand recognition, like big brands. They are more interested in finding something they feel is beautiful and new and fits with their store. We often find a lot of very small boutiques in Europe you know, that you know, are attracted to our product. And we find certain regions that really like our products. So we're very strong in the Benelux area, which is Belgium, Luxembourg, uh, like Switzerland, that whole area. They, the women love it. And would you have guessed that that would be true before you did it? Not at all. And I think because they enjoy the silhouette, as we were talking about volume. I mean, I think that you know one of the famous you know designers of that area is Dries Van Noten, and you know his his silhouettes are quite simple. They're quite you know boxy, let's say. And so Anak can be very unique in that market. And it's not overly um, saturated at all, and it can be very special and very you know artisan to them. And then also there's no price resistance. They appreciate the quality and they'll pay for the quality and they'll pay for the specialness of the product. And also the women who wear it are, you know, they're older, they're, they want to look chic as well as, you know, a lot of, we even have mothers and daughters who may shop together. So, uh, you know, a daughter in her 30s or 40s and the mom maybe 50s, 60s will shop it and they love it. There's no resistance in some ways, but in America, North America, we feel that there's focus on lower price point and wanting it to be cheaper and also maybe about being form-fitting or quote-unquote sexy. So it's, it's a, and that's the extreme. That's kind of the, you know, the larger accounts, the larger stores that might want that. But then we have a very small segment of small boutiques uh, that, who understand more of our creative designs and they'll often get those special pieces. Uh, so it, it's a bit the, you know, runs the, the spectrum in that regard. That's great that you can reach so many people, though. It, yeah, like who would have thought if you were doing marketing? You're like, you know what I really The, the Benelux is right. really like where really it's at right. for me. And yeah. Japan, of course, which we, we, yeah. were, we were targeting for quite for a mm -hmm. long, long time. So it took us a while to get Japan. Um, but they wanted to, you know, they, te they test you out for years mm -hmm. before they'll actually buy you. Have you found that there are people who will come to the showroom a few times before they decide to order from you? Uh, yes, particularly when we first started the brand, buyers would like to make sure that a brand will be around. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an investment for them to, to order styles and they'd like to see that a brand is stable. Oftentimes they might even test you out for three seasons and we found that with our customers in Japan. That they would watch and yes. then they started ordering three seasons yes. later. Yeah. No, I've heard from a few different stores that they they won't buy the first one or two seasons right. a brand comes out, and I'm guessing it's for reasons that, like you said, yes, they want sure to make sure they're going to be around. Yeah, <laughs> it does make it hard. It does make it. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm all. I always want to be like the first on the bandwagon, kind yeah. of. It's kind of fun, but but also it's like but it's also risky it might too. Not work out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think also on top of that is how a brand is uh, recognized or brand awareness. So mm -hmm. some stores rely on customers knowing, mm -hmm. you know, the brand. Mm -hmm. Then other stores, I think the neat thing about Ren is discovering a brand mm -hmm. that, and, um, you know, and I think with your curation, it, it really allows a customer to see that. And not every store is, is, you know, 
skilled in that way. Oh, thank you so much. I think it's funny. It's been a double-edged sword. More recently, we've had a lot of people come in who I'm like, I think you're another store. And they'll go around and they'll shop the store in a way right. that feels different than a customer would. Like they're inspecting things. It doesn't <laughs> feel like I'm like a customer and I'm interested in buying this. Right. They're, and, and then sometimes they'll take pictures of the tags oh, or wow. there'll be large posses the way buyers travel in right. posses. Right. If someone doesn't know this, when buyers are at shows, they'll be in little groups. Yes. It's really funny. And you can like spot them and they'll be these little posses or we have people there was someone who went in the fitting room and they were just taking lots of pictures it was very strange yeah so anyway that's been kind of something that like it's a double-edged sort of picking up someone new because if you're going to end up being kind of a spokesperson and a free pr person for a brand you kind of want i don't know it's complicated yeah I mean, but those are, like, there are also people that come in and are just, like, flipping them to look at, like, the seams and stuff. Right. Yeah, it's like, like the sewing nerds. That's like, how I am. Oh, I'm yeah, always looking gosh. at construction or appreciating <laughs> or, or the stitch. And I'm like, oh, oh, what a good stitch. Yeah. What a good so bun. Nice. No, there's definitely, <laughs> like, the mom and daughters we both like to sew and knit that right. come in. And, right. and they're, like, they're wow, fine. Yeah, and it's just, it's interesting because being in a store, you can see how people shop and interact with things. And, again, you can see people who look like they're buying, people who are just trying to get in from the cold or people who are very interested in construction. Well, culturally speaking, I mean, in Paris, when I used to go, um, when I worked for a uh, larger corporation, the, they were often security guards. And so they, if they see you taking a photo, they, they will walk up to you and ask you to delete that photo. Or if they see someone even sketching something, they'll mm-hmm. they'll ask them to wow. rip the page out. I've and never seen that. I wish they would do it. Yes. I know when I did a trade show a couple times, like we had a few bigger people like Isetan came right. through. And they just took so many notes. They took so many yeah. pictures, and then I never heard from them again. Right. I mean, I mean, it's unlikely I would hear from them anyway. Sure. But right. I was just kind of like, hmm. "What you doing? And this what is you a, doing?" Wasn't even at a trade show. This was just in a department store. store. So that was so, so impressive. Because <laughs> it's like I want to let people to be able to take pictures in here sure. for fun. But now I'm like, hmm. don't have a photo shoot in here. Yeah, yeah. some people. Oh do yeah, some people like. Really? There was like a. One person came out and this guy started posing all over the store. Wow. And the lady had a real camera. Yeah. So I'm like, what are uh, you doing? Yeah. Wow. I did so not that realize a, that. That was an interesting. Yep. In closing, where would you like to, you know, if you could dream big, where would you see yourself in like a year, five years, ten years with a knock? Um, well, with a knock, I really, my, my long-term goal is to be able to have the brand sustain. I mean, fashion is always evolving, always changing, let alone business on top of that. And it's quite a precarious time in fashion. Um, a lot of the um, known entities are, are no longer stable or reliable. What I would like to be able to see for Anak is to be able for us to, to weather the storm. And that might look like different things to different people. But for us, I think we might scale back a little bit. I think really want to build our relationships with our specialty boutiques like like a Ren and um, and I also plan to get on the road a bit more and uh, visit the stores and get to know our customers and get to see our stores because often we might just meet buyers who come to New York or Paris and, and buy but it, unless they're nearby I don't get to see the stores so I really think it's going to be about those relationship building that kind of hand holding and that kind of partnership. And working on maybe some smaller smaller projects or collaborations. And I think that specialness and that unique point of view is what's going to help us weather the storm in that regard. 
So I think that's a great idea. I think those little collaborations have worked very well with us. Yeah. Like if you ask a, that does have a more flexible factory minimum or right. capacity that, oh, can we order 15 or 20 of this and it's exclusive to us? Right. So, and I think we're, you know, we're going to also try to see if there's things like, you know, maybe get back into the knits and mm -hmm. figure out how we can venture into that, that area. Also, I might be exploring other types of apparel. So, see two other types of so, apparel. Yeah, so I, I, I won't disclose quite Okay, yet. I won't ask. <laughs> but we are trying to really think of ways that we can grow that but doesn't mean that we get we produce more or mm -hmm. we get larger where we can offer product maybe a little bit more often but also still working within our parameters maximizing like the work for the artisans mm -hmm. at a reasonable rate I think that's really what it's going to be I think slow and steady yes <laughs> it's really our, my, my goal at that point I think slow and steady is just yeah. good advice exactly. for everybody yeah because yeah. like, then you're not pressuring it's not like three months of high pressure and then Right. Six months of nothing and then three months of high pressure. And then, yeah, you want to keep even, even pressure. Yes. Even throughout no, the whole year. Around. No high stress peaks yeah. or right. anything. Because, yeah. Because then burnout. And if you're mostly just you, if you burn out, then. If you could just get 10 people to get on board with the, like, we're going to start our production and move production right. and deliveries in a different yeah. way. Get it well, moving. I think that's a, it started uh, happening when I was in Los Angeles recently, and I and I, I did. I, I packed up the suitcase, I packed up the collection, and, and I went to the store. I mean, even for them to travel to New York, or you know, we, they came in December, but our collection wasn't ready yet, so I made up that time by mm -hmm. going to them. Yeah. And I get real feedback. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're telling me about their customer, the kind of, you know, average size of the customer, the average, you know, kind of purchase and, and just to see that type of store environment and the weather, all of those things play into it. Mm -hmm. and, and they're able to, you know, be more flexible or say, okay, we'll wait a little longer for that. Or, you know, or, you know, we don't need it that at that point. It's, it's fine. I find that for us, we're finding more, it really doesn't matter when, when something comes, comes right. yeah. as long as everyone's on the same page about yeah. that. No, absolutely. Yeah. So I would be happy to order a year before right. some, I knew something yeah. was going to come in. Knock well, on wood, I'd be still in business by yes. then, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like happy, like air quotes, because of course everything we order, we like really like it and we really want right. it, but we'd be happy if it makes a brand more functional. Right, of course. Use, well, not useful, but, yeah. you know. And maybe within reason. I mean, yeah. one of our stores has told us, I think, Someone was so late, so as if they're delivering sandals in like you know in yeah. winter time or something yeah. doesn't make sense, no. obviously. Or boots in in yeah. like high summer. August, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we've had some 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 something something like oh yeah, yeah. Like coats at the end of the winter and you're like, mm. or coats in July because yeah. they're like we're going on vacation. Yeah, there you gonna, go. Yeah, get this off. We're gonna now. deliver our fall stuff now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but no one wants it because it's. 100 degrees and 100% humidity. So. Where can people find you both on your website or on Instagram? We'll also add all this in the show notes that people can click on. Sure. We don't have our own e-commerce, mm -hmm. so we really work with uh, the stores. So obviously Ren is online, and then we also have Vestige, uh, Sunroom, uh, Matches Fashion, Limoda Operandi, and then we have Selfridges online. And the rest are on uh, small 
smaller specialty stores, which you can be found on our website. And, and in the Benelux too, apparently. Yes. <laughs> and what's your Instagram handle if people want to look you up? The Instagram handle is at Anat Collection. And if for some reason they want to email you, what is your email address? Info at Anat Collection. Thank you so much for coming yeah. in today. Thank you guys. Thank it was you. a pleasure. And you can find us at Ren underscore. Nope. We got it wrong again. Ren, whatever. You can find us in the If you show just type notes. in Ren, it'll come up. We just have yeah. to have a period and an underscore there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And we really appreciate said rate, reviews, and subscriptions. So Unless you're going to give us one star. Yeah. Don't do it's, that. It's That's so mean. Just, just write yell at that us down in an email. And yeah. Put it in a special away. place. Yep. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. See you later.